Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. If you are genuinely curious about what is going on in your customers' worlds and what they care about, you already are probably in the top 20% of sellers out there, right? You need to understand your ICP. You need to understand more importantly, the personas that you're selling to within that ICP. And you need to understand like, what are the metrics, the projects, the company-wide goals they're responsible to. And you need to understand it intimately. Cause if you don't, then you're just spraying and praying. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion, and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change, or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hireful what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hirefo.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefo.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Welcome to On Target. My guest today is Carl Peterson. Carl's the VP of sales at Dandy. He's a well-renounced advisor and also a former army veteran. So really excited to unpack his story in that regard. In this episode, we're going to be talking about some of his passions and his beliefs around leadership in sales. And he's also a huge advocate for training underdeveloped leaders and encouraging them to ask for the support that they need to further their careers. So let's get into it. Carl, it's great to have you on. Alex, thank you. Excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, Carl, you get to pitch your product or service day in, day out. So I'd love to hear in 30 seconds or less from you, a bit of an elevator pitch around the introduction of Carl Peterson. So here's what I would say. I am someone who has taken the time to put together a mission statement, a personal mission statement. My mission statement is to learn and teach and seek to inspire others to be more than they thought they could be. So as concisely as possible, Alex, I am someone who considers life nothing more than a journey where we try to get 1% better every day. And while I'm growing and learning, my hope is that I can bring the people that I work with day in and day out on a journey to self-improvement as well. That is wonderful. Feels like a a mic drop moment to uh, kick off the pod. So I I love it. So we, we've got to unpack your story, Carl. There's, the, I'm sure, many different layers to it. And, and uh, for whatever you're comfortable in sharing, both personal and professional, what have been some of the, the biggest lessons and learnings throughout your story? And just walk us through some of the key highlights. I'll start by saying uh, this. this. This started when I was in the military. And although I love my brothers and sisters in the Army, I was in the Navy. So go Navy, beat Army. Uh, but what my, where my story starts is... You know, this would have been back in the early to mid 2000s. And when I was stationed overseas, when you're not, you know, working on the flight line, which was my situation, those either exercising or reading. And I really fell in love with investments. And while you certainly don't join the military to make money, right? 
Um, you do have a little bit of discretionary income because you're not spending any money while you're living in a tent in a desert. So I would take whatever discretionary income I had and I would invest it. And back then it didn't really matter what I invested in. It was going up and to the right. And I just remember having this aha moment of like, wow, you know, this distinction between appreciating and depreciating assets. Uh, and I was wondering why more people didn't do it. And uh, for all the great things that the military is known for, one of the things it's not known for, at least in the Navy, is making smart financial decisions when you're young, right? And so I saw a lot of my shipmates who weren't necessarily making the best financial decisions and it put themselves and their family in what I thought were avoidable, difficult financial circumstances. So I decided I, when, when I got out, I was going to go to school for finance and I was going to be a financial advisor. So that's exactly what I did. I went to work for a not-for-profit financial planning company, did some volunteer work with junior financial literacy, and all in the effort and in the spirit of trying to make sure that people were doing the things that were basic and essential to creating financial freedom at some point later in life. So that's where the journey started for me. And, and the genesis was really as simple as that. Awesome. And I'd love if you could fast forward us into your transition into sales and then talk to us a bit about your journey into leadership in the present day. So did finance for four or five years and um, on a whim, uh, late night, I was studying for my CFP. This was the last certification I needed, Alex, to just lock in my career for being a financial advisor indefinitely. And I started to get this itch. You know, what if there's something else out there? All I had done to this point was the military and finance. I had no reason to dislike what I was doing. It was quite fulfilling, but I was still young and curious if there was something else out there. And so I had the conversation with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and she said, why don't you, you know, follow your gut, go try something else. If it doesn't work out, you'll scratch the itch and you know move forward. And if it does work out, then no regrets. So went and got into B2B SaaS. Uh, I thought there were a lot of transferable skill sets, started pounding doors, you know, running, uh, running from, from shop to shop, trying to sell payroll, HR and benefit services with ADP grew a ton as a seller during those years. And from that journey, uh, joined a, a early stage startup named Gusto, where I spent four years building, uh, one of the fastest growing companies with a great team of, of individuals and to answer your question, what has really been the key driver for me being in leadership goes back to that mission statement. Like there, there is a point that some people get to where they get more excitement and joy watching other people win than they do themselves. And when I felt that shift, that's when I knew my motivations were aligned and it was time for me to start working for people instead of working for myself. I love it. When we'll definitely unpack this mission statement in a bit more detail. Now, Carl, from your time in the Navy, right? And I can hear in your voice, there's a lot of passion when you talk about building teams. And I, I can only assume building culture and all of these types of things that, that go into that. You must have spent a lot of time thinking these things through and really getting specific around what's important. So just talk to us about some of the core pillars of really building sustaining and scaling best-in-class sales teams? It's probably more complex than this, but I'm a big fan of, of keeping things simple. There's two things that have to be true at the core when you're building a team. So one is trust, right? There's a book that I think most have read called Five Dysfunction of a Team. 
And that's this whole concept of at the base of this pyramid uh, has to be trust. And so one of the ways in which you build trust is by doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. It's holding yourself and people accountable. It's creating an environment where people feel safe to ask for feedback, to push each other, to challenge each other. The second is just having very clear expectations of what good looks like. There are a lot of people out there, Alex, I'm sure you've seen this, who are working really hard. Their motivations are in the right place. They're showing up early. They're staying late. They are doing everything, but they're still not getting to where they want to be or getting the end of year reviews they want or the promotions they think they expect. And often, in my experience, that's just a result of not clearly understanding what great looks like to whoever it is they're they're reporting into. So if you have trust and you have clear definitions of what good looks like, that to me is truly the foundation of building a, a high-performing team. I'd be curious to unpack how much of that you really took from your days as a veteran. Were these some of the core principles that really underpin what it took to be a great team member uh, or a member of uh, you know your cohort while you were in the uh, as a veteran? Or have things changed? Did you have to evolve your way of thinking to then unpack the fact that those are the two staple ingredients? I mean, the trust, certainly I learned that in the military, right? So for example, you know, I'm going to butcher this concept, but, but there's this concept of leadership. You can get it from experience. You can get it from title. Uh, and there's like three or four different types of quote unquote leadership. And in the military, there are people who you will find yourself reporting into who inspire you, you follow them because they're just great at what they do. You know their interests are, or your interests are theirs as well, right? There's an alignment to a, a North Star. And occasionally you'll find someone, typically a more junior leader, who relies on their title, their rank, to get people to do what they want to do. And while at the end of the day, they might result in the jobs getting done, there is far more camaraderie and long-term sustainable camaraderie if the leader is leading through experience and they're doing it with their team as opposed to telling their team what to do and just relying on their rank or their title. So uh, having been exposed to both of those mindsets, certainly, right? One stood out as what I don't want to be and one is what I absolutely want to aspire to be. It's a fascinating one. There's this... uh saying, which I'm sure you've heard, Carl, and, and many others out there would have, which is just leading from the front. And what that often means to me is that having that willingness to be in the trenches when and where necessary, because, you know, once you become a leader, sometimes for, for, for some people, it means they think they can be on the sidelines, uh, call out orders. And to your point, uh, because you've got a fancy job title, that that warrants uh, people having to take action and, and do what they're told. But absolutely that doesn't uh, warrant those things, right? Being able to be in the trenches, you get a unique perspective on what's truly going on on the front line. You spend time with customers, you spend time with your team. To your point, you earn respect and it gives you much more diversity of perspective because you've been privy to seeing many more battles that you can then take forward uh, to help to empower your team moving forward. So I love this as a, a general topic. I've just mentioned that that point of really empowering your team and it, it brings me on to just sales enablement and continuous development of teams. 
love to just get your thoughts around how you go about embedding a culture of having really hunger to learn and, and building a culture around continuous development. I mean, it certainly depends on the stage and maturity of the organization, how many layers of, of leadership are there on how I personally create that culture. But generally speaking, right, from a, a fundamental point of view, I'm a big fan of doing call reviews with the account executives. And I'm a fan of doing them one-on-one in a you know safe private space to begin with to build that trust and then i'm eventually trying to move into a place where you're doing it as a team and the team is giving constructive feedback and sharing best practices and so i'll give you an example when i was at gusto right like once our team had been working together for a while and we had all learned to trust each other uh, there weren't any lone wolves right everyone felt like we were all rowing in the same direction Every Friday afternoon, we would get in a conference room and the way we ended our week is we would sit down around the table, either have some snacks or some drinks, and we would play a call and it would be one of our peers and they would always volunteer a call because they wanted to get the coaching from their team. It wasn't like they were forced to share a call. They would volunteer their calls. We would all listen. We would take notes and we'd provide constructive feedback. And as soon as we were done doing that, Alex... We would then go back and role play it, right? So it's one thing to give feedback and everyone walks out. And it's another thing to give feedback and say, okay, let's practice. What does that sound like live? And when you get to a place where as a team, you can do that and you enjoy it, that to me is like the the perfect place to be. So that's that's one example of how I've done that at previous organizations with teams that I've been empowering. Doing the repetitions is so important. I, I love the fact that you called out the role playing. I still think it's one of the most underrated and, and underutilized tools for sales leaders out there. And also one of the simplest, right? Uh, it's one thing to go through the theory and read the books and read the content, but you've got to get out on the field and do some reps to really start to create that muscle memory. So uh, it's great to hear uh, role-playing be- becoming central to your approach and strategy. Now, for, for many people listening, Carl, pipe gen and generating pipeline is is really the lifeblood of what a lot of us are thinking about right now and all the time, right? Um, love to just get some of the, the tactical plays or some of the ways that you think about fostering a great culture around pipeline generation. I think for some reps, it, it can feel like uh, the thing on the side that no one wants to touch, but it's just a necessary evil. So I'd just love to learn a bit more about how you've been able to foster a culture uh, that gets people engaged around that. Starts with visibility. Every single person in the revenue organization should understand what their expectations are, right? When I talked about what does good look like, some of that's qualitative, some of it's quantitative. Quantitative, a very obvious example would be quota attainment or sales for an AE. It could be number of opportunities created or dollars of pipeline generated for an SDR. Once you understand what your expectations are, it is the responsibility of leadership to then sit down with each of those individuals and walk them through their their waterfall, right? Based on our conversion rates at different stages in this waterfall, if you're going to create 10 opportunities, right, you need to have 15 meetings scheduled because three of them will no-show and two won't be qualified. In order to have 15 meetings scheduled, you're going to have to make X amount of calls or emails, whatever it is, and you just work your way up the funnel. So you need to have visibility into the path to hitting their target. You do this for the AEs, you do this for the SDRs. 
You also do this with marketing, right? We're expecting 30% of our pipeline to come inbound from marketing. So what has to be true from your marketing partners in order to get that 30%? Now, once you've established this and everyone understands what the playbook is and what our recipe for success is, then each week, right, you want to start to assess where you're at. Marketing might be underperforming. They might be, you know, doing the opposite. Same thing with SDRs and AEs. At the end of the day, the AE is the role where the, you know, the buck stops as much as we uh, might not want to hear that. If I'm an AE with a quota, hopefully I'm getting what is expected from marketing and SDRs. But if I'm not, that means that's implying that I should have extra capacity to prospect on my own, right? Like if I'm, if all this is being built where I'm just sitting on demos all day long and following up with open deals in my pipeline, great. But if I'm not getting the volume, that means I got time on my calendar. So you need to close that gap. So I'll, I'll have those conversations with each person. Are we hitting our targets? If so, why? Let's study it, learn from it. If not, why? Let's study it, let's learn from it. And then lastly, what's our plan to, to change or course correct if we're, we're not on track? So those weekly meetings where we are checking where everyone's at, it's not a finger pointing game. It's simply assessing and then making a plan to adjust as needed. I mean, what, what I hear through quite a lot of that, Carl, is accountability, right? You, you set out the plan, you give people a, a barometer around what excellence looks like, but then there's a need for people to take ownership and, and accountability so that when they're actually rolling in their results to you, there's again that, that shared accountability at both sides to continue to raise the bar. It raises a question around talent and really being in a position where I'd love to unpack how you actually go about assessing talent, some of the characteristics that you feel are really important when it comes to recruiting best-in-class sellers. One thing, just before I get to that, Alex, I want to double-click into, you know, you can build the waterfall, you can have accountability, but what I have never seen happen in my years, many years of, of selling and leading sales is that what plan you establish at the beginning of the year or the quarter or even the month actually goes perfectly to plan. So yes, you want to hold people accountable, but what's even more important than that is when you inevitably have to adjust, what does that conversation look like? In a high-performing team, it's typically starting with data. Hey, what are we seeing in the numbers? And I'll use an analogy. I'll use football, you know, American-style football here. Um, you might go in with a, a game plan where you're going to be a run-heavy offense but you find out that, you know, you're just not making any headway, uh, but you think they've got an injured corner or a, you know, a weak second line defense. And so you're going to start hearing it out in the second half, right? You start to realize that whatever demand gen strategy you had in place, the yield isn't what was expected, but we're seeing maybe a higher yield on in-person events. So let's pivot some of our energy and money from demand gen, the traditional, you know, SEO, we use that, that, that category. And we're going to, sponsor a few more events. We're going to pay to send more people to some conferences, right? You want to make sure that when you're holding people accountable, once you've identified the problem, you're working as a team to say, great, well, where are we overperforming and how can we double down on that? So I just want to share that I think that's an important part of all this because it will never go as planned and just pointing fingers without a uh, alternate, you know, move forward strategy is not exactly going to help anybody. Thanks a lot for calling that out, Khan. I think it's, it's an important call out. The accountability piece is, of course, incredibly important. But to your point, there's absolutely more 
more layers to that. I do like the way that you spoke a bit about uh, leveraging data, right, and and using that intently. I've certainly found, you know, we uh, also run weekly pipeline reviews and, uh, you know, uh, being able to look into that data is obviously incredibly important, but it's really being thoughtful about the insights that that data is actually deriving and then how do we make measurable change and drive action off the back of that data. So I think what it sounds like you guys are doing uh, particularly well is uh, combining data accountability and actually taking action to really set yourselves up for success as you move forward. I do want to pivot back to this point around talent because I think that is incredibly important and I'd love to get your perspective on some of the key characteristics that you look out for when it comes to hiring and uh, trying to identify best-in-class talent. I'll use the example of uh, an SDR or an account executive. There's there's five attributes ultimately, and I do focus on attributes, less so on experience in a particular segment or industry or how many years they've been doing something, right? Like at the end of the day, you could have 10 years of experience of underperformance. I don't see why that makes you any more qualified or hungry than someone who's just getting started. And if I'm even halfway decent at my job or my team of leaders is halfway decent at their job, right? We'll teach you the skills. But what I can't coach is the will. Um, and so I focus a lot more on the attributes and there's, there's five big ones. The first one is ownership mentality. I am looking for individuals who look at everything in life as happening through them, not to them. That to me is a very important distinction. And there's a lot of, you know, sayings and motivational posters out there around. It's not what happens to you. It's how you react, but there's so much wisdom in that. And there really are two types of people, right? It's those who life is just happening to them and those where it's happening through them. And I think that is one of the first things I'm looking for. So ownership mentality. Second is coachability to what I had just said earlier, Alex, I, I know that if someone is open to coaching and even better than open to it, they they have examples of proactively seeking coaching out. I know they'll get the coaching for myself, for my team, because the first thing I tell all of the frontline leaders that I, I hire is their number one job, if nothing else, is to coach their team. I will never get upset if a project is delayed or something else that's administrative or ancillary to their primary responsibility suffers because they are over-indexing on just coaching their team. So ownership mentality, coachability. Next is high EQ. In sales, you have to be able to read the room. You have to be able to understand what's being said, what isn't being said. Look at the nonverbal communications have empathy, have curiosity. There are some people, right, where EQ, the best sellers I've, I've ever worked with, they just had an innate ability to connect with people, understand people, and read the room and pivot as needed. And if you don't have EQ, right, you could be really talented and work really hard, but you might be missing some really important moments uh, that have a pivotal impact on your deal. The, the fourth one, Alex, is work ethic. As I said earlier, right? I can teach skill. I can't teach will. You either want this or you don't. So I'm looking for people who can give examples of you know times where they went above and beyond and times where they've had to make hard choices of what they weren't going to prioritize so they could go all in 
on their number one priority. And then last but not least is collaboration. I've seen high-performing lone wolves. And not to say that there's not a place for individuals like that on a team, but if you have a group of individuals who genuinely want to see the team do well, not just themselves, regardless of what the hell is happening around them, but their team do well, and they're sharing what didn't work, they're sharing what did work, they're coaching their peers, they're jumping in and helping them out on demos or stepping in when they're running late on a call, that is a massive difference maker when it comes to culture. So that would be the the fifth attribute that I'm looking for in a seller. It's a great five. It, it really is. It, it bows the question of the five, which ones or how many do you believe can be developed or ignited in someone versus just innate? I would hope most of these are innate. I mean, things like coachability and high EQ, right? Some of that's innate, um, but they're, they're coach. They're, they're, they're something you can develop. So I'll use, you know, coachability as an example, right? There might be individuals who've never really had an opportunity to be coached, right? They, they just, that never existed. And so you have to show them through how you treat others on the team that like, this is what better looks like. It is me joining you on a call and right afterwards, we talk about what went well and what did it. I provide feedback and then we do a role play. And then I am going to check in on the next call to see, did you implement that feedback? And if you can do that enough times, right, that is a new skill, coachability, um, that hopefully somebody somebody can develop over time. I'd be curious to know if you think work ethic can be developed or ignited. And just add a, a, a bit more flavor to the question. I see that there's a difference between igniting in someone something that they've maybe lost mentally, right? So someone may have been on a journey where they generally have a fire, but that fire's gone out. I'm curious to know if you feel you can ignite something in someone or whether there's just a real reality that you've either got it or you don't. You've got to find your way out of that hole or you can't. So when you look at something like work ethic, is that something that you see as ignitable, so to speak? Work ethic isn't going to matter if there's not like an intrinsic motivation to whatever it is that person's supposed to be working on. And that's a really, that's a good call out, Alex. So one, is there an alignment of mission and vision, right? If I'm doing a job that I couldn't care less about, then naturally I'm not going to show up and give 110%. Let's assume then that there is an alignment there. What also has to be true and what I'm, I'm hearing you say, Alex, is are you helping them like see how their actions and their work ethic will get them to their goal? And that does require, you know, this hopefully happening in one-on-ones, but that does require you as a leader to understand like, what is this person's motivation, right? Some AEs, they, they're like, I don't want to lead people. I want to just go be the highest performing AE possible, make a ton of money and have complete autonomy. Some say, I want to do that, but then I want to get into enterprise. And yes, some obviously do take to the path of getting into leadership. So if you can help them understand and give them opportunities to get there, then ideally they will show up and work harder for that. Like you're not going to work hard for something that you don't think is going to get you to where you want to go. So I think that's a really important call out. Now, if all of that's there, 
and they're still, you know, they're given 80% or what you perceive to be 80%. Yeah. Like at some point I just, we all know people who are willing to work a little bit harder and that's fine. Success is not title. It's not income. It's relative to everybody. So as long as their understanding of, they have a solid understanding of their version of success. And if doing, you know, what may be 80% of what some other members of the team are doing gets them there, that's their choice. Right. But we always get what we put in. And for those who can go the extra mile, they're more likely than not going to be the ones who get that first crack at that next opportunity. A lot of this plays into what you were saying at, at the top with regards to the, the will aspect of this, right? You, you want people who have the will and the desire to go and achieve something great. And when you're looking at talent and, you know, we often talk about the skill versus will debate and, you know, would you want to take on a seller that has all the skill in the world and no will or the opposite or uh, some semblance of both. And, you know, what I've heard throughout this, Carl, which is something that I would personally second is that will absolutely takes credence and precedence over, over skill. You want someone who uh, has the desire and the willingness to, to run through walls to make it happen. That's got a, a hunger and a thirst to learn, grow, get better, be coachable versus someone that has all of the experience in the world, but just no desire, right? And that that fire has burnt out, but they have no desire to to reignite it. So I love this topic and, and, and I really like your five. I, lo I love the fact that the five were not centered around, you know, 20 years of SaaS enterprise experience, but actually your your content of character, because I think that's so incredibly important in a space that is well rewarded, but just very, very tough, right? There's no surprise that we have high burnout rates. You, you've got to have something in you that really wants to uh, play offense uh, if we're talking about American football in this game. Um, I want to uh, transition now, Carl, to learn a bit more about really your personal operating rhythm. And uh, at the beginning of the call in your intro, you spoke about the time where exercise was such a big part of your life. So Talk to us a bit about your personal operating rhythm. Is exercise still a big part of that? What else do you do to retain your energy and vigor? Yeah, one of the biggest changes I made was, you know, I don't know who said it, but they basically write the saying is, don't prioritize your schedule, schedule your priorities. That was a big kind of aha moment for me because once I started actually blocking my calendar, to the things that I knew needed to be true in order for me to show up and be, you know, my best self for my, my team and my company and my family, it helps. And you obviously have to adhere to that. But so for example, Alex, like it's really important for me to start my day with silence and with, with a little bit of investment in myself. I feel so much better if I have invested in myself before anything else. So I get up at five o'clock every single day and I spend 30 minutes drinking my cup of coffee and it's often reading a book or it might be listening to a podcast, but something where I feel I'm growing, learning and developing. Then at 5.30 to 6.30, I do exercise. I don't exercise uh, five days a week, but it's, it's three to four days a week. And it's either a run, a bike ride or weights, right? Just something to get the blood flow moving. So I again, feel like I took care of me first. Then the day starts, right? It's it's work. There's ideally a lot of structure to the work day, but you have to be able to pivot and as the as the needs come along. Um, and then I have a hard block on my schedule every day from five to seven thirty, and that's purely family time. 
unless it's a burning emergency, it can wait until after my kids are asleep or it can wait till the next day. But there is a two and a half hour block where it's time for me to hear how my kids day went at school, hear how my wife's day went at work, make family or make dinner and just be a family. So yeah, I do definitely have a structure to my day, not just ad work, but on the front end and back end of it as well. Clearly you start early and it was interesting when you spoke about just that, that quiet time and it almost sounds like you, you block out the world to a degree and, and you get to really zone in. Do you spend much time during those windows doing any form of planning ahead for your day or any kind of organizational or structure or is it much more you just take that time as it is, the day kicks off and things just figure themselves out? I just really want to unpack how you go about the organizational part of the day. And I want to understand where that comes into play. Every Sunday afternoon or early evening, I, I organize the week. So I do spend about 60 minutes uh, every Sunday just looking at my week ahead and making sure I'm organized and have what I need to be done, done. And then from a daily just recap perspective, that's what I do after the kids are asleep. So catching up on emails, Slack, my to-do list that grew throughout the day, that's all at night when likely, right, work emails and communications have slowed down. That's when I can get my my work caught up. So that's how I, I stay organized. I think there is an implicit assumption though here, like there's an assumption I'm making, right, that people do have structure to their Monday through Friday, you know, we'll call it nine to five. I do try to have Mondays be my pipeline and forecast and most of my one-on-ones. Tuesdays are typically reserved for all executive meetings or cross-functional meetings. Wednesday and Thursday, I am just trying to be involved with sales and help out in any way possible. Sometimes it's, it's running meetings or training. Sometimes it's jumping in on deals, could be handling escalations. But my team knows that those two days are the days when I'm most available to jump in and, and help out and hear the voice of the, the prospect. And then Friday is typically kind of a, a free-for-all. Um, it just depends. But my first four days are pretty well structured and laid out. And the people I work with have visibility into that, which helps to minimize some of the, the slacks and emails that go back and forth. We actually have some similarities, Carl. I'll, I'll share with you what my general schedule looks like because the Mondays are PG Mondays, one-to-ones, and uh, a forecasting or forecast meetings that my directs do. On Tuesdays, they're my forecast meeting in, in the morning with them. Uh, but in essence, Tuesdays through to Thursdays are uh, what I call the days in the trenches. So that's everything um, typically that's deal related or uh, customer related. And then Friday uh, is is more of a enablement slash territory planning uh, day. And so uh, the way that we operate as leaders is very much centered around the way that the reps uh, calendars look like, and that's how it's split out. So we share some similarities, certainly in the way that you start the week and uh, you've got to start the week as you mean to go on. So uh, always interesting to compare notes. I'd say that, Carl, I'm sure you'll agree, at least to some degree, that time is the biggest threat for people like you, yourself and myself. Calendars get busy, high demand, a, a lot of things to do and, and, and always too little time. What do you feel are the some of the biggest threats on and biggest drains on sales leaders' times? And any thoughts or tactics around how uh, we can get better control of the diary or start to claw back some time? 
you have to be really clear at the beginning of, I call it a, you know, it's a quarter for us, could be monthly or annually for other companies, but you have to be very clear on what your priorities are. And when we talk about our priorities or OKRs, which is often the framework used, there's a important step that I take uh, and I think everyone should take, which is also a slide on what you're not doing. And I bring this up at the all hands with the sales team because I need them to understand two things. One, that I heard them and I acknowledge that this is a problem and we're consciously not doing it. And here's why. I want every single person on the team at the beginning of the quarter to say, great, these are the three things we're focused on and why. Here's where we're at and here's where we need to be, right? A very obvious and measurable plan in place. But I also want them to hear what we're not going to do because those things are always things I had heard in skip levels or heard cross-functionally or anecdotally shadowing calls. And I don't ever want the team to think that I either am unaware of it or that I don't think it matters, right? But the reality is whether it's product request or customer support, whatever it is, there's always more demand than there is supply. So I just have to make it crystal clear what we're not doing, not because I don't care, not because I don't think it's important, just because if everything's a priority, nothing is. So we clearly lay that out. That saves people a lot of time because as soon as I get a slack about, hey, what about this, right? Real quick templated response, hear you, not a priority this quarter, we'll circle back next quarter. And then the second thing is making sure everybody knows what they're empowered to do. So when we bring on new AEs and new managers, I have a document that I walk them through on like what the expectations are of the role. And if you're a leader, as an example, I, it's very clear what they can just run with, right? There's budget, we'll give them. You don't need to ask for permission. Just go and do it. If there's a problem, here's what you're fully capable of handling on your own. Don't feel like you got to loop me in. And if everyone understands what they're empowered to do on their own, because I trust them and their expertise and their familiarity with the situation, then it also prevents a lot of just like unnecessary escalations. So if you have those two things in place, I think your calendar might be more protected. Interesting ones there, actually, uh, some some uh, different ones to, to what I'd heard before, but incredibly important. I get the good sense from you, Carl, that your, your ability to prioritize and sometimes uh, just kind of come down the line with the team, right? To let them know, hey, uh, love the idea, love what you're talking about, but based on our, the way we're prioritizing this quarter, this just isn't it, but absolutely happy to come back to it. I love the way that you you frame that. And I think that premise of sometimes saying no or, or, or letting people know what's real for right now and what we can park is uh, incredibly important for, again, reclaiming the calendar, so to speak. Going to move into our, our last segment here, Carl, and I'd love to learn a bit more about some of the core principles that you feel are really important for sales leaders and sellers alike to really adhere to when it comes to actually winning business. Any thoughts on that? All right. If I had to pick one thing in what could be right many, it is a great discovery mindset, not a discovery stage, discovery frameworks. There's billions of them, but a discovery mindset. If you are genuinely curious about what is going on in your customer's world and what they care about, you already are probably in the top 20% of sellers out there, right? You need to understand your ICP. You need to understand more importantly, the personas that you're selling to within that ICP. And you need to understand like, what are the metrics, the projects, the company-wide goals they're responsible to. 
And you need to understand it intimately. Because if you don't, then you're just spraying and praying. And the sooner that you can intimately understand those things, the much more likely you are to have a compelling message when you're trying to just get them to engage with you. The much more likely you are to deliver a really bespoke value add illustrative vision of what better could look like during your demo. And the more likely you are to actually get the budget from the CFO who doesn't necessarily care about those things. So I would say if I had to boil it down, Alex, it would be a great discovery mindset. The call out on mindset over framework is awesome, uh, especially uh, because the thing we become so wrapped up in deal stages and, and going from, you know, discovery to demo, to workshop, to, to anything beyond that. And, uh, the premise of having that continual mindset of being curious, asking questions, leaning in, going to layer three with your customers to truly, truly understand and to unpack is, uh, incredibly important. I'll put another one into the mix for the leaders listening out there is it's really to have conviction in everything that you do. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous, tremendous difference when you're going into a first meeting and, and anything beyond and just being in cruise control when you're talking through with the customer about learning about their situation and how you think you can help, have conviction. You know, if you're working for a company, you've got to be working there for a reason. You've got to have some form of belief in the transformation that you can drive for that organization. Believe it. And if you combine that with having that discovery-based mindset all the way through, you're in a really powerful position to first seek to understand and then to be able to prescribe once you've understood how you can be helpful. Uh, but when you prescribe, do it with conviction and it will make a tremendous difference to up-leveling your team. One other thing, Carl, I I'd love for you to just take a moment to just visualize a deal, any deal throughout your career, whether you were in the field yourself or as a leader, one that just stands out in your mind just share with us a key takeaway from that deal. It could be absolutely anything. It could be the, the biggest win of your career or the, the biggest loss. Just talk to us about a key takeaway, uh, what you learned and, and how it affected you moving forward. I don't remember the name of the company, but I do vividly remember the situation. So back when I was at Gusto and I was leading a team, I had an individual who had moved into a AE role for the first time and they were coming up at the end of ramp and they were, they were losing confidence. Like they had gone through the grind. They had taken the steps that I had asked them to take. They were, you know, they had the, they had the will, right. And they were definitely open to coaching and they had not yet seen the results. And I vividly remember we were sitting in a conference room. It was at the end of the day, most of the sales floor had cleared out you know, the sun was setting, right? So we're like in this well-lit conference room, it's just kind of dark and empty out around us. And the individual was getting kind of choked up. I mean, they were, they were like, I don't want to fail. Like, I really want to work here. And I kept trying to let them know and build confidence. They're like, listen, your job is not at risk. Like success isn't just getting the deal signed. Like keep doing the work, keep doing the steps that we know will inevitably get you there and just trust the process. And it was the very next day one of the deals that he had closed lost because they said they were going with a competitor emailed him and they said, Hey, we were going to go with enter competitor's name, but we decided to come back to you guys. 
And the reason we're doing this is because we were misled in the sales process and I've lost all trust with, insert the competitor's name. And so while you all are a little bit more expensive, it's really important to me that I work with people I trust. Now, this was a small business owner in the, in the Denver area. And the, uh, I, you know, the AE sent me the email. He said, holy cow, look at this. He ended up closing the deal, which allowed him to hit his ramp quota. And he ended up going on to be a very, you know, successful AE Augusto. But it was a deal I'll never forget because going back to what I said at the beginning, Alex, I was as excited about him getting that deal, maybe even more so than he was because I saw the passion. I saw the work he was putting in. I had asked him to trust the process we had built and it all came back. And to put the cherry on top, it reinforced for the entire team because we shared this with the team, obviously, and celebrated with them that being honest and having integrity in your sales process, you will never regret that ever. And that's a deal that I'll, I'll never forget. I am so glad I asked you that question because of that answer. That I mean, the, the lesson in that is just, it's a bit of a, a wow moment and one that we can all learn from, can never be emphasized or re-emphasized enough. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, one that I'll definitely sit and reflect on for, for a period of time. Now, but before we wrap, Carl, I've really enjoyed the conversation, but I'd love to hear that the single best piece of advice that you'd give to, to any sales leader that's listening to help them to really up level in their career. What's the best piece of advice that stands out in your mind? Uh, it would be to proactively seek out coaching and mentorship. I know when I first got into leadership, I was under the impression that if I'm being trusted to lead a team, right, I must have some degree of competence. I must know what I'm doing, which there's truth to that. But it took me longer than I would like to admit to realize that I don't need to go and figure out how to reinvent the wheel. I don't need to make the same mistakes other leaders have made to learn them. I am much better off, and therefore my team would be much better off if I found out people who could serve as mentors or leverage external resources. There's companies like the Mintable out there who quite literally exist to help leaders become better leaders, the soft skills, the hard skills, and everything in between. So if you're a leader, the best thing you can do is not to wait for your manager to come to you and say, hey, I want to put you in a program. Go ask for it. And if you don't get budget for it, then go pay for it on your own because it will pay off in spades for you and it'll pay off in spades for the people that you're leading. Uh, so that would be that would be my biggest my biggest tip, Alex. What a wonderful way to wrap up the podcast. Carl, have you enjoyed being on? I've loved it. I really appreciate the uh, the invite. Wonderful. That's awesome. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Great insights to everyone that's listening. Really hope that you enjoyed the episode. As always, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please take a moment to one, share it, and two, leave us a five-star review to help with our reach. And if you're watching us on YouTube, again, appreciate you tuning in. Please take a moment to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.